The Bible and even history is full of stories and individuals who are amazing examples of the power of one. The idea that one person could take their one and only life and really make a difference in this world and in the lives of other people. In the political world, we can think about people like Washington or Jefferson or Lincoln. We can, in the civil rights world, we can think about people like Rosa Parks or, or uh, Martin Luther King Jr. From history, we remember contributions of people like Einstein or Henry Ford or even Lewis and Clark. When I think of the power of one in the religious world, I think of Old Testament Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers and then became second in charge of the nation of Egypt. I think of the prophet Daniel, who said, I will not eat the king's meat and I will not drink the king's wine. I will only serve the Lord. I think about the apostle Paul, who, who became the greatest missionary effort after he was a persecutor of Christians. I, I think of names like Martin Luther and, and Mother Teresa and Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody and John Wesley and the man who uh, ministry I came to the Lord under, Billy Graham. Chuck Swindoll says you could actually hit it from a different angle if you would like. Think about the difference one vote can make. In 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. In 1776, one vote gave America the English language instead of the German language. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union, and Texas is still mad at that one person. In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. In 1875, one vote changed France from a monarchy to a republic. In 1876, One vote gave Rutherford B. Hayes the United States presidency. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. In 1941, one vote saved the selective service system just 12 weeks before Pearl Harbor. There is incredible power in one. And when you read God's word, you see story after story after story of God's hand on the life of one man or one woman who met God on a pathway of faith and stepped out and either did what was right in the faith of, face of opposition or trusted God to accomplish great feats of heroism. And as a result, their stories still impact our lives today. Listen to the verses that impact or, or emphasize the incredible power of one. One of my favorite verses in Second Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those, that one person whose heart is completely his. Jeremiah 5, 1, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem and look around and consider and search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. In Ezekiel twenty two thirty, God says, I looked for someone who might build, rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. There is incredible power in one. Well, this morning we are in a series called Forgotten, and over the last several weeks we've been looking at some of the lesser-known names and characters of the Bible, and we've been making a case that throughout the Bible and throughout history, God has used ordinary, obscure, unlikely, and even seemingly forgotten people to accomplish not only his purposes, but to accomplish his glory. And while this morning we're going to look at 
probably one of my very favorite forgotten characters in the, in the Bible. It's a guy by the name of Mordecai. Now, in order to learn about Mordecai, we're going to have to turn to the book of Esther. Esther is in the Old Testament. It is sandwiched between the books of Nehemiah and Job. Well, before, as we get into Esther, I want to kind of set the stage for our study today. About 464 years before Jesus was ever born, the Jews were living in exile in Persia. If you were to go to the book of Daniel, you would read the story of how the Jewish people had fallen into captivity to the Babylonians, which today is modern-day Iraq. Then you would read later on in Daniel that the Persians conquer the Babylonians and the Jews become captives to the Persians, which is modern-day Iran. So the story of Esther and Mordecai take place about 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. Well, this morning we're going to talk about what takes place in Esther chapter 3 and 4, but before we get to that place, I feel like I need to give you the cliff note version of how we get to this place in Esther chapter 1 and 2. Now, the king of Persia at this time in history is a guy by the name of King Xerxes. His wife is named Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti, according to the Bible, is a beautiful woman. Xerxes and Vashti like to party. In chapter 1, they both throw separate parties. And on the seventh day of Xerxes' party, the Bible says that he's half drunk. And in his half drunken state, he it decides that he wants Queen Vashti to come to his party, leave her party, come to his party, so that she can show herself off, so he can show how beautiful she is to all of his officials and all of the men that he likes to party with. But Xerxes runs into a problem. Queen Vashti won't come to his party. She won't do this. And so the king becomes furious with Vashti. So he calls all of his advisors together and he says, what am I going to do with this woman? This woman? And the advice they give him is, you need to banish her from the palace forever. Get rid of this woman. And so that's what he does. And then he makes a law that from here on out, wives must show proper respect to their husbands. In other words, whatever the man of the house says, that's what goes. Then Xerxes' advisors tell him, listen, you need to get yourself a new wife. There needs to be a new queen in the palace So they basically go throughout the whole kingdom and they gather every young, beautiful, virgin woman in the land and they decide to hold a beauty pageant so that the king can pick out his new wife. In this pageant is a young Jewish woman by the name of Esther. We find out from reading in the Bible that early in her life her parents died. So she was raised by her older cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai. And the Bible says he raised her like one of his own daughters. When Esther is chosen to be part of this 460 B.C. version of the TV show The Bachelor, Mordecai tells Esther not to tell anyone that she is a Jew, and so she doesn't do that. Now, throughout this whole ordeal, day after day after day, different young women are brought before the king. And if you like The Bachelor, you can read all that takes place in chapter 2 because it's kind of the same concept from what I've been told. When it's it's Esther's turn to come before the king, the Bible says that immediately he falls in love with her. He takes the royal crown and he places it on her head. He ends his search for for a wife and Esther now becomes the queen of Persia. So then Xerxes does what Xerxes likes to do. He throws a party. He throws a party to celebrate Esther becoming the queen. And at this party, he elevates her cousin Mordecai to become a palace official. 
Now still, no one knows that Mordecai and Esther are actually Jews living in captivity in Persia. Now, Esther chapter 3 is where the story takes a very dramatic twist. Chapter 3 is where you actually turn the TV channel from The Bachelor to a really something better, like 24. Because 24 is about an ordinary man who could do extraordinary things. Jack Bauer could actually take his iPhone and do things with his iPhone that none of us could ever do. And he actually had like an iPhone 3. (laughs) Mordecai is like a much less violent Old Testament version of Jack Bauer. God used this one ordinary obscure man to not only save King Xerxes from an assassination plot at the end of chapter 2, But he begins to use him in chapter 3 to uncover a plot to kill every Jewish person living in all 127 provinces of Xerxes' reign, which would actually have been from India all the way to Ethiopia. Now, one of the reasons that I really felt led to speak on Mordecai this morning is that his life and his story is an amazing example of how God can take the life of one ordinary, unknown, obscure, and even seemingly forgotten person and use them to do extraordinary things for his glory. Mordecai's story is an incredible example of the power of one. Now, as we get into chapter 3, the Bible says that Esther's cousin and her guardian, Mordecai, was sitting at the king's gate. And while he is there, he uncovers this plot to assassinate King Xerxes, chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1. And after these, King Xerxes promotes Haman the, the Agagite, the son of Hamatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Xerxes knows that Mordecai basically saves his life, so he gives him a promotion. He then promotes another man by the name of Haman to become second command. in in command of the entire kingdom of Persia. And as part of his promotion, everybody in the land now has to bow down to Haman every time Haman shows up to show Haman respect and honor. Well, everybody in the land complies with this new law except for one guy, Mordecai. He is not going to bow down to Haman. Now, at this point in the story, Mordecai has revealed that he's actually Jewish. We don't know why he did that, but he does. And the Bible then tells us that Haman becomes so obsessed with the fact that Mordecai will not bow down to him that he decides that punishing Mordecai is not enough to appease his anger. Look at verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In other words, Haman wants to wipe out the entire Jewish population living in the Persian Empire, which again was about 127 provinces. So he goes to the king, and in verse 8, here's what happens. Then Haman said to the king, Xerxes, he says, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. 
In other words, King Haman is offering the king a bribe, 10,000 talents, which today would have equaled 300 tons of silver. And Haman says, I'll give you, listen, I'll give you this much money if you will let me destroy this entire race of people that are living in captivity in your kingdom. Well, in verses 10 and 11, the king takes his signet ring from his hand, which was really a symbol of, his, of authority. And he gives it to Haman to basically say, okay, now, because I give you this ring, you now have power. And he tells him, listen, I want you to keep the bribe money. You don't need to give me that, but just go ahead and do whatever you would like to do with the Jews. In other words, Xerxes gives his blessing to Haman and his henchmen to destroy an entire, the entire Jewish population living in Persia. Now remember this, he still doesn't know that his wife Esther is Jewish. Now things really start to heat up from here on out. We get into chapter 4, and in verse 1 it says, When Mordecai learned all of that had been done, he tore his clothes... He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, we've talked about this over the last few weeks, but just as a refresher, back in Old Testament times, when people in this time would lose a family member or some kind of disaster would come upon a nation or a people group, people would put on this loose-fitting, dark-colored sackcloth made of goat's hair. Very uncomfortable. And they would clothe themselves... Uh, cover themselves in ashes to make themselves actually look unclean. It was a symbol of deep, intense grief and mourning. And in verse 2, it says, He went up, Mordecai went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Mordecai goes to the king's gate hoping that maybe he can catch the attention of Esther so that he can tell her what has happened. Verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, words of Haman's plans have now spread from province to province, and the Jews have now come together, and there is widespread sorrow and mourning. It would be like a decree or a law or something, an edict coming down from Washington, D.C., saying that everyone living in the state of Georgia should be killed. Well, if that that were to happen, the south would rise again, right? Verse 4. When Esther's young young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now listen, at this point in the story, Esther does not actually know that her people are about to be destroyed, but she finds out that Mordecai is outside of the city, the king's gate, and he's wearing sackcloth. He's covered in ashes, and she sends one of her servants, a guy by the name of Hathak, to help him and to find out what's going on here. So Mordecai not only informs Hathak of what's happening, but he sends along a copy of the edict back to Esther so that she could see that it officially had come from the king's office. Mordecai also tells the servant, listen, when you go back, I want you to plead with Esther to go before the king and to plead for mercy for the Jewish people. Now listen, folks, this is Mordecai's defining moment. He has to get Esther to use the position that God has given her now as the queen of Persia to save her own people, the Jews. Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, Listen, all the king's servants 
And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king's to the king these 30 days. Now listen, Esther is in a pickle here because she knows that if she goes before the king without an invitation from the king, the law is he could actually have her put to death. And it's been 30 days since she's actually been in the king's presence. But Mordecai's also in a dilemma here because Esther's his little girl. He has raised her, he loves her like a daughter, and now he is asking her to risk her life. But he has to somehow convince her that she has been put into this position for a purpose, that God has providentially brought her to this place of authority to actually make a difference on behalf of the people of Israel. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance will rise up for for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Chuck Swindoll says those words go down in history as a turning point speech. This is a defining moment in this story where things could either go one way or the other. Esther, you're a Jew just like the rest of us. Don't think that you're going to escape just like any of us will. Esther, even if you don't act, God will raise someone else up. But Esther, do not think that just maybe. Do you not think that just maybe? Somehow God in his providence has put you in this place and has given you this crown because he wants to use you at this moment. Esther, this is your moment. Do something. Either lead, follow, or get out of the way. That's basically what Mordecai's told her. Now I want to tell you something. I love this guy, Mordecai. All of us need a Mordecai in our lives, don't we? I think all of us need someone who has the guts and someone who has the ability and has the courage to say the, the hard things to us at the right moment to sometimes get us to look past our fears and even to grab a challenge by the horns when we need to. And I want to ask you something this morning. Who plays that role in your life? Who loves you enough to challenge you in those moments where you're tempted to sometimes shrink back in the face of fear? Who, who inspires you to be courageous and defiant in the face of a world that would cause you to shrink back from following God? Who loves you enough to tell you the truth about yourself? Who helps you identify what God's calling you to do? All of us need someone in our lives like that. And if you don't have someone in your life, I want to challenge you to pray that person into your life. Now let's look at, at Esther's response because her response is monumental. In verse 16, she says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do and then I will go to the king though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Mordecai has now gotten through to Esther. And for Esther, being the queen is no longer important to her. She realizes at this moment that she has been placed in the palace for this one moment. This is the defining moment of her life, and she is not going to miss it. 
And she says, even though I know it's against the king's law, I'm going in and I'm going to see him. And if I must die, I'm willing to die. This is like Patrick Henry saying, give me liberty or give me death. This is like Nathan Hale who said, I regret that I have only one life to lose for my country. This is like David standing before Goliath with a sling and five stones saying, my God will fight for me. This is like Acts chapter 3 and 4 where Peter and John are laying it on the line before the rulers and the elders of Jerusalem and, and basically informing them that they can do whatever they want to them because they will not stop speaking about Jesus. And now, this is Esther. Esther's grabbed hold of this moment, this idea that one person with God's power has, can make a huge difference if they will just meet God at the crossroads of faith and obedience. Listen, I know that sometimes it is easy to underestimate the power of one. It's easy to underestimate the incredible value that God has placed on your one and only life. It's easy to feel like your voice doesn't count. But listen to me. God has put you on this earth for this one brief moment in the history of civilization. And he has given you a certain amount of years and a certain amount of days and a certain amount of minutes and a certain amount of seconds to make a difference. And the question is, what will you do with this one and only life that God has given you? Now, like every other sermon in this series, there's lessons that pop all out all over the page at us, and I want to just name three of them. What is it that we can learn from Mordecai's story? First of all, making a difference begins when one person truly believes that one person can truly make a difference. I want to challenge you this morning to stop being so worried about what other people may think about you. See, oftentimes we don't believe our lives can make a difference because we're consumed with doubt and fear. You want to make your life count? Then know in your heart that God has put you on this earth at this moment to make a difference either in a situation or in someone else's life. Mordecai believed that he could make a difference. He believed that if he could just speak into Esther's life, that she would have the courage to speak up and to save an entire race of people. The second thing is God can use us when we are willing to trust him and move from our harbors of safety even even into the open waters of faith. One of the hardest things to do in this life is sometimes is to move out of our comfort zones, out of the harbor of safety to meet God into the open waters of faith. Why? Because the harbor of safety is warm, isn't it? It's comfortable, it's cozy, it's cushy. The waves don't rock the boat in the harbor of safety and yet We realize when we're in there, there's very little danger to encounter. But out out in the open waters of faith where things get a little bit scary, don't they? Things can get a little bit uncertain. Things can even get, get a little bit undefined. However, it's out in those open waters that we get to see God really do his stuff. That we get to see God really use this one and only life that he's given us to accomplish the extraordinary for his glory. What if Mordecai had not had the courage to speak boldly to Esther's life? I mean, think about the thousands and thousands of people that might have been lost at this moment. And today, I want to encourage you to trust God by faith and to ask him to help you to overcome your fears and to put your faith in his ability alone to allow you to use your one and only life for his purposes and for his glory. And then finally, the biggest lesson and the lesson that jumps off the page at, to me, at me and smacks me in the face and the biggest lesson of the whole series. Here we go. The power of one is really a story of the one who has rescued us and has given us victory over sin and death. Listen, I want to tell you something about the book of Esther that you may not know. God's name is never mentioned one time in the whole book. In all 66 books in the Bible, it's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. 
There's not one reference to God the Father, God the Son, or even God the Holy Spirit any place in the, in, in the entire book. And yet all three are very present in every scene. The hand of God, the Father, the hand of God, the Son, the hand of God, the Spirit are involved in every defining moment. Throughout the whole story, God's sovereign hand is constantly moving in the lives of Mordecai and Esther, strengthening them at the right time, guiding them just at the right moment, and protecting them throughout the whole story so that God's people could be delivered from destruction. And this morning, listen, you may feel like you have been forgotten. You may feel like your circumstances are overwhelming you. You You may feel like like the enemy is about to take you out. You may feel like you are down for the count this morning. But I want you to know if you're a child of God, even though you may not feel like you can see God, you may not feel like he's even present in your life, you may feel like he's invisible to you, I want you to know that he is not invincible, that he he is very invincible. He's very much involved in your story. He may be back in the background right now just strengthening you. He may be guiding you. He may be protecting you in ways that you could have never imagined. And you may feel powerless right now, but the one who has all of the power is silently and lovingly empowering you even when you don't see it and when you don't feel it. The power of one in Mordecai's life is really a story about the power of one who gave him the power. The power of one in Esther's life is really a story about the one who gave her the power. The whole book is about the power of one. It's about the power of God. You say, how does the story end? Don't leave us hanging. Esther boldly but humbly goes before the king. He graciously holds out his scepter. She pleads for the life of her people. She exposes Haman and his wickedness, and the king has Haman hanged from the gallows. Haman arrogantly thought that he could destroy God's people, but quite the opposite happened. God stepped in and saved the day. He provided a young lady named Esther to intercede on behalf of his people and an older cousin named Mordecai to quietly encourage her and to guide her along to accomplish what God set out for her to accomplish. When you hear this story, does it not remind you of another story? Like the Jews living in exile? We are captive to sin and we are doomed to eternity without Jesus Christ. Like Haman, Satan longs to take you out and destroy you. But like Esther, God has sent Jesus his son to intercede on your behalf. He sent Jesus to pay for your sins and to offer you a rescue from the consequences of sin, which is what? Which is death and an eternity in hell. And today, like Mordecai, quietly working behind the scenes of the story, God's Holy Spirit is at work in in your heart right now, convicting you of your sin and making you aware of the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. He's making you aware that through the power of one man's sacrifice, you can be rescued and you can be given power over sin and death. Here's how Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says it. For as through the one man's disobedience and the many were made sinners, talking about Adam, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's the power of one. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you can point to a place in your life at one moment where you look back and you go, there was a moment where I put my trust and my faith in Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. But yet, today I feel 
buried. I feel forgotten. I feel like life has just swept past me. I feel like I'm down on the mat, looking up at the ceiling, and I'm just waiting for someone to tap me out. Jesus Christ is here today and offers you the same strength that he gave you at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is still available, still willing to empower you. He's never left you. He's ready to fill your life once again. The question is, will you surrender all this to him? Will you take just that feeling of being overwhelmed and that burden and that discouragement and maybe even those feelings of depression and will you just lay him down at his feet and let him carry those things for you? Will you trust him? Will you continue to walk in faith and follow him? Some of you are here today. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your personal savior. Your sins have separated you from Jesus. They have made things, not only from Jesus, but from God. They have created this huge chasm that you could never, ever, even on your best day, work to get across to get to God. That's why God had to send his son Jesus to intercede on your behalf. And right now there's a Holy Spirit that you can't see that is working in your life and he's convicting you of your sin and he's telling you Jesus is the only way Jesus is the only way don't miss this opportunity and my, my challenge to you and I'm pleading with you right now is would you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sins to set you free from the penalty of sin and to be your Lord and Savior and if you are willing to do that would you pray with me right now bow your heads Father pray with me Father at this very moment I put my faith and my trust in Christ alone. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to, Lord, be my Savior. Lord, I can't work to fill in the gap that exists between me and God right now. The distance is way too too far. That's why Jesus came to pay for my sins. And because of this gift of grace, I receive it by faith. I put every bit of my trust and every bit of my faith in Jesus Christ alone and I receive him into my life right now to be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you. In Jesus' name. I want you to stand right now. I want to end this series and I want to end this day. I want to end this morning singing about the power of one, Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He's the one we put our faith and our trust in. Not just at the moment of salvation, but at every moment of every single day. And if you need to come and just pray at these steps and to bring your burdens, to bring just the things that you're going through right now and just place them down in front of the Lord, I promise you the Holy Spirit's not going to let you down. He's not going to leave you hanging. He'll meet you. Jesus will meet you at these steps. He'll meet you wherever you are. If you want to put your faith and trust in Christ, maybe you've done that, you want to pray with somebody, come down and let one of us know. I had a chance right here in the, after the first service to meet a young man. He just was overwhelmed. He was crying, telling me. Just, he said, I've just, I, I've, I've just felt like I've just been forgotten. I feel like just my life is not meaning anything to me, and I'm just so down. And I looked at him, and I said, have you ever put your faith and trust in Christ? And he said, no. And I had a chance to lead him to the Lord right there. Maybe that's you this morning. Whatever God's calling you to do, overcome your fears right now and step out and be bold and courageous and meet him at the crossroads of faith and obedience.
Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ alone our hope and our strength is found. And we want to sing about that at this very moment. In Jesus' name we pray.